Now, I don't know if you've ever read the Screwtape Letters, right? I don't know if you've read that. Uh, it's a fictional novel written by C.S. Lewis in 1942. Uh, it is about Screwtape, a senior demon or a senior devil, and is writing letters to his nephew and protege, Wormwood. Why is Screwtape doing this? Well, he wants to teach Wormwood how to tempt a certain man into sin. The man in the novel is called the patient, right? So uh, this man professes to be a Christian. He attends church regularly. Uh, but Screwtape wants him to go to hell. Now, in one of the letters, Screwtape says that the best strategy uh, to tempt this man, to move him from the path of righteousness, as it were, is to make sure that this man has something called Christianity and mindset, right? Christianity and something else mindset, we might say. He says, don't let him have a mere Christianity. And of course, C.S. Lewis has written a book by that name, hasn't he? Don't let him have a mere Christianity, a simple and pure faith in Christ. No, make sure that this man's life is always about Christianity and something else. Scripture then, of course, gives a list in the novel about things which were popular among Christians in the 1940s when Lewis, of course, wrote the book. So he says, make sure he has Christianity and new psychology. That was a big thing then. Make sure you have Christianity and make sure he has Christianity and faith healing. Not just Christianity, but Christianity and faith healing. He says, make sure he has Christianity and vegetarianism, which is quite interesting, isn't it? It was a big thing, obviously, back then. Now, I think if C.S. Lewis was writing today, I'm pretty sure Scrutep's list would include things like Christianity and being true to yourself, Christianity and self-help, Christianity and the environment, Christianity and social justice, Christianity and feminism, Christianity and nationalism, and I think the list would just carry on, wouldn't it? Now, of course, as I said, Scrutep's letters is pure fiction, although you do get worried as you really just how real it feels, but I'm sure it's pure fiction. But there is some truth in what Scrutep says. Satan's goal is always to convince us that Christ is not enough. The devil doesn't want you to have a simple and pure faith in Christ. He wants you to add to it. He says to us, until you add this thing on top of your faith in Christ, you won't be fulfilled. I wonder as you sit here this morning, what is Satan tempting you to add to Christ? Satan is always doing this to all of us. He's always constantly tempting us to add to Christ. So what I'm asking you this morning is, what is Satan tempting you to add to Christ? What is he tempting you with? You've got to answer that for yourself. And there I say, have you sat down to actually examine yourself about this question? What is the something else that your life currently revolves around on top of Christ. That thing you believe that in order for you to be fulfilled and satisfied in life, you must have Christ 
and this something else. I wonder this morning, how would you finish this sentence for yourself? I am being tempted to have Christ and... Is it Christ and a great career, perhaps? Christ and being popular? Christ and being married? Unless I'm married, my life won't be fulfilled. Christ and having a spouse who does what I want. Unless I can get my wife to do what I want, I'm never going to be happy. Unless I can get my husband to do my will, my bidding, I just can't be happy. Is it Christ and a great ministry? For those of us serving at least in vocational ministry or serving in the lay ministry, whatever the Lord has called us to, is it Christ and nothing? Unless I have a great ministry under my belt or purse, right? I won't be satisfied. I need that. Is it Christ and my social media presence? Could I have a good profile online? Is it Christ and my hobby? I need Christ and I need my video games. I need Christ and I need my, for me, chess playing. Right? And for ladies, is it Christ and your beauty? What is it for you that you must have? With Christ. Many of us live a Christ plus X life, isn't it? That's the formula for life. Christ plus X. That's the formula we have. It looks innocent. It looks harmless. And at one level, it even looks commendable, doesn't it? We think we are helping Christ out, don't we? It feels like that. But it is a sin to God. Luther said, Martin Luther said, whatever your heart clings to and confides in, that is really your God. Did you get that? Whatever your heart clings to and confides in, that is really your God. Worshipping other things on top of Christ is an abomination to God. Living like that can never lead us to anywhere good. It is idolatry. There is only one true worship, and that is the worship of Christ and Christ alone. And we must do it on his terms and on his terms alone. Anything else is evil to God. It is godless Christianity. It is a Christless Christianity. It is trying to have Christ on our terms, and Christ just won't permit it. He won't permit Christ and Something else. As long as you can take him or leave him, you might as well leave him. Because Christ won't be taken half-heartedly. It is Christ alone and Christ alone. And this is the main point the Apostle Paul makes in this wonderful letter we are studying to new followers of Christ in the ancient city of Colossae. As you know, if you've been with us for a while, the Colossians, like us today, were being tempted by the world around them, by people around them, uh, to add to Christ with man-centered thinking. We talked about that when we looked at verse 8. They were saying, look, you've got to add to Christ. Christ isn't enough. And you've got to add to Christ all kinds of worldly living. And Paul wrote this letter to say, nah. 
Don't do it. You have everything you need in Christ because you belong to God in Christ. And he makes that point in verse 8 to verse 10. Let me just re- refresh your mind with that. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition and according to the elemental spirits of the world and not according to Christ. For in him, that is Christ, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. And you have been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority. The boy is saying, Christ is enough. And in, now in verse 11 to verse 14, which we have begun looking at, Paul explains to the Colossians why we can be confident that as true followers of Christ, we are complete in Christ because we share life with Christ our God. So let's read again verse 11 to 14. In him also you are circumcised with a circumcision made without hands, by putting off the body of flesh by the circumcision of Christ having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God, who raised raised him from the dead. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive with him, made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by cancelling the record of debt, that stood against us with his legal demands. This is set aside, nailing it to the cross. Paul is saying there simply this. We are complete in Christ because God has made us his new people in Christ by making a share in the death and resurrection of Christ. In short, the story of Christ is our story by faith. When Christ died, we died with him. When Christ rose, we rose with him. And we are now alive, connected, in union with Christ forever. In fact, we are sat in heaven with Christ, as we'll see when we get to chapter 3. Now, last week we looked at verse 11 to verse 12, didn't we? And if you're here last week, you know that we learned that God has made us his new people in Christ by making us participate in the death of Christ. That was a key point last week, and, and it's really foundational, perhaps, for you to understand what we, uh, we are going to look at from verse 12 to 14. Uh, because in verse 12 to 14, these verses are teaching us this. They are teaching us that God has given us new life in Christ, right? He hasn't just made us his new his people. He has actually given us, he has actually changed us. He has given us new life by uniting us with Christ in his resurrection. If you like, the death of Christ makes us the people of God. The resurrection of Christ produces the newness of life through our resurrection union with Christ. And that's what I want us to look at today. That's a lesson we are learning today. In your bulletin, it says, we have a new life by our resurrection union with Christ. That's the main point we are looking at. God has united us with Christ in the resurrection of Christ by our faith. Verse 12 again there, isn't it? Verse 11, in him also you are circumcised with the circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been what? Buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith 
in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. And then verse 13 says this, And you who were dead in your trespasses and second to your flesh, God made alive together with him. What is Paul saying there? Well, Paul is saying simply this to the Colossians. When God raised Christ physically from the dead, God also raised you spiritually from the dead. You are now alive with Christ. Before you trusted in Christ, you were spiritually dead in your trespasses, Paul says. You are like a zombie nation. You looked alive, but you were in fact dead. Dead in sin. You had no life of God in you because you were living as lawbreakers before the holy God. Put simply, dear friends, says Paul, you were spiritually uncircumcised. That is to say, you couldn't fulfill all the requirements to live right with God. You are living in this world without hope and without God in the world. And there was no way for you to be, to live with God. Because the only route available at the time was through the physically chosen, through the chosen physical people of God, the people of Israel. But you, the Colossians, and all Gentiles were not part of the chosen people of God, says Paul. You were pagans. The uncircumcised. Strangers, as Paul says elsewhere, to the promises of God. But God, says Paul, has now done the impossible. God has united you with the Messiah, Jesus. He's your Messiah now. God has done that to make you his new people. And that's what verse 11 and verse 12 is really getting it. And then he goes on to say, when Christ died on the cross, God performed, if you like, Paul is saying in verse 11, a, a spiritual circumcision to make you his new people in Christ by making you die with Christ on the cross. And then God buried you with Christ. Your old life was buried in that tomb of Joseph of Arimathea for three days. And then, but God didn't end there. God raised you up with Christ when you life, says Paul. You are now complete in Christ because you are alive with Christ forever. You are forever united with Christ because you shared in his resurrection. That's basically what Paul is saying from verse 11 to the middle of verse 13. You are alive with Christ. But Paul knows that if he hangs in the middle of verse 13... The Colossians will start thinking to themselves, to themselves, Brother Paul, this sounds too good to be true for us. How can God just give us a brand new life with Christ when we have lived as pagans our whole lives? What about all our sins? What about all the horrible things we have done? Is God going just to turn a blind eye to it? Is there not something that we need to do to end our way to God? They're saying there are people here at Colossae that have come, you know, good teachers with PhDs, right? And they're telling us we must look to angels and we must keep the Jewish laws to make ourselves qualified before God. They're saying Christ is not enough. Are you, the Apostle Paul, really saying these people are all wrong? Well, Paul already has an answer. And his answer is that yes, they are all wrong. Because he continues in verse 13, doesn't he? And you were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh. God made alive together with him, 
How? Having forgiven us all our trespasses. By canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands, this is set aside, nailing it to the cross. Paul is saying to them, you are already alive with Christ. Because God has already forgiven all your sins. He's saying it's like this. All followers of Christ once owed God a lot of IOUs. You had accumulated these IOUs because of your many violations of the law of God. You had a huge record of debt before God for your sin. That's the natural condition of every human being. You were spiritually broke. Full of spiritual CCJs, we might say. You are condemned because of that to hell forever for your debt. But God has changed all of that. He has canceled your debt. How did God do it? By bringing your infinite record of debt to our Lord Jesus Christ on the cross. On the cross, a double exchange has taken place, says Paul. When Christ died on the cross, he took on your debt. And you, in return, took on his clean record. You're no longer in spiritual default. Your life is no longer being repossessed, we might say. You're no longer bound in chains to your sin. All your violation of the perfect moral law of God, all your filth and innocence, sins, all your private and public sins, past, present, future, all of them is forgiven. All forgiven. And the proof, says Paul, is that you have this new forgiven life in God. The proof that you have this forgiven life with God is that God raised the Messiah, Jesus, from the dead. Because when he rose, you were raised with him. Just as the resurrection of Christ was God's thumbs up to Christ to say, Well done, my son, the work is finished. Because you were with him. It was as if God was saying to you, You are all forgiven now. And by God raising you with Christ and joining you with Christ forever, God has accepted that indeed the debt for your sin has been fully paid by Christ. Verse 13 and 14 are words to read again, aren't they? And you, 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 you a sinner, you were dead in your trespasses, and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God has made, has made alive, not by yourself, together with Christ, having forgiven us all our trespasses, cancelling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This is set aside, nailing it to the cross. The bottom line is this. If you are a true follower of Christ, you have a new forgiven life with Christ because you are now alive with Christ by faith in him. That's a wonderful truth, isn't it? So what are the benefits then of our new life with Christ? How does being alive in Christ make us complete? Well, I just want to share with you this morning two immediate benefits. And I've already touched on the first benefit. 
The first benefit is that if you are in Christ, you are now free from the penalty of your sin. As I said, God has forgiven all your sins forever. Past, present, and future. What is a Christian? A Christian is a person who has repented of their sin and has had all their sins completely forgiven by God. Now, I know you have heard this truth before, and I, and I suspect some of you are already saying, we know this already, and probably are dozing off, or you're just tired, or you're just like, well, I've heard that many times before. It's not for me. Well, I believe in it. Full stop. I know you have. I know you have. And my question for you this morning is very simple. Do you believe this truth? Does this truth excite you? Is it shaping how you are living right now? If it is, how is it shaping how you are living right now? This truth that you are free from the penalty of sin. How did it shape your past week? We need to ask ourselves this. Because many people who profess faith in Christ don't live as if this truth is true. Pamela has volunteered to help out at a daughter's primary school, even though she's already way overcommitted. Why is Pamela doing this? Well, she, has decided, she decided some time back to be the best parent for God. She feels it's better to wear out than to rust out. Now she feels joyless and she's trapped in this. Pamela professes faith in Christ, of course. Patrick has been unwell for the last few months, but he never really talks about it. And the situation has left him quite frustrated. He's worried about what people in the church think about him. He thinks some of them are disappointed in him because he's rarely around. That's Patrick's story. John is feeling bitter. He has always done his best. He makes every effort to serve the church. And he, of course, avoids any unbelieving girlfriends. But God has still not provided for him a wife. And he feels God has not kept his side of the bargain. And so John's life with God has become very dry. It is hard work. It is joyless. He's living in doubt of God. Let me ask you this question. What is the problem with Pamela, Patrick, and John? Why are they living disappointed and joyless life? Why are they living like that? Well, the simple answer is that they have forgotten the truth of this passage. They have forgotten that Christ has freed them from the penalty of sin. They have forgotten that God has already forgiven them all their sins. And that no matter what is going on in their lives right now, the one thing they can be very sure of is that they are not in this situation because somehow they have fallen out of favor with God. These three individuals, they have forgotten that they don't need to end their way to God. They don't need to add things to Christ to make them complete. They've also forgotten that. They have forgotten that they are already forgiven, they are already satisfied. 
that they have the best thing they can ever hope for in this world, which is they are free from the penalty of sin before God. They are already complete in Christ. All the things they are working for cannot make them more complete than they already are. You see, when we know that Christ has freed us from the penalty of sin, when we really know, I'm not talking about just reading it. You know the knowing of you know, the knowing that changes you. The knowing that, that, that makes you like, I know. When you know like that, that Christ has freed you from the penalty of sin, your life and service to God, beloved, stops being about trying to buy God off. That's an abomination, trying to buy God off. And your life to God stops being joyless and, 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 and dry. No, no, no. It's overflowing with joy. When we know you are truly forgiven, you want to live and serve God with overflowing thanks and joy for what God has already done. I can usually just tell by looking at a Christian that I'm talking to that, yeah, she knows the joy of sins forgiven because they're just there joyful and living for him and buzzing with energy, gospel-filled energy. And it's obvious that they're doing it not because they need to end favor. They're doing it because they know the joys of sin forgiven. Let me ask you this question. How is your life with God at the moment? How is your life with God at the moment? Honestly. How is your life with God at the moment? Do you know something of what I'm talking about? The joy of being forgiven. Do you know something of the service that flows from that? Overflowing service driven by the joy of being forgiven. Is your life with God at the moment more about buying God off? Or is it being driven by this joy of knowing that Christ has freed me from my sins. Let me ask you this. Why did you decide to come to church this morning? Why are you here? Honestly, why did you come today? Is it because you feel you must put in some time for the Lord? Or because you think Christ is your true delight? Yes, my world is, is crushing and there's so many things going on, but I love Jesus and I need to be there with God's people. I need to worship him and to live for him. What about your giving of your offerings and gifts to God? What makes you give to God? For some of us, the question is, are we even giving at all? But let's assume you are. What makes you give to God? You know, when you walk out, you go to the offering box, or I don't know, you set up your direct debit. What motivates you to do that? Do you do it because you feel obligated to do it? Or even perhaps pitying the church a bit, we must give, because frankly, the church needs money, right? Or is your giving actually driven by this joy of sins forgiven? Is it 
God, you blessed me so much in Christ. My, the penalty of my sins gone. And that's why I just want to give you. I know that I can never fully repair. But I want to do what I can to support your work in this world. These are painful. These are difficult questions, isn't it? But we need to face up to them because, you see, this benefit of being free from the penalty of sin must do those two things I've been hinting on, isn't it? It is meant to take away the idea from us that we must somehow perform in some way to be accepted by God. It kills that, right? You're already accepted by God. So it kills that. And the other thing it's meant to do is what? It's then in return meant to fill you with gratitude in whatever situation you're in because you know the most important thing about you is not your externals or your life circumstances. It is that you have been forgiven of your sins. You are free from the penalty of sin. Those two things. It is meant to say to ourselves, no matter what is going on in my life, There is nothing more I need in this world than Christ and having my sins forgiven. We know we don't deserve forgiveness of sins. I know I deserve the wrath and judgment of God. But God, by his grace, has freed me from the penalty of sin. You and I know just how difficult it is to forgive people in our lives. As I sit here, some of you perhaps have a person you haven't even forgiven. It is hard to forgive people, isn't it? People who have hurt us, it's hard to forgive. So we know that. So isn't it amazing that God in Christ has freed you from the penalty of your offense against him? Your lack of forgiveness should make you sit up. At the thought that you are, as you sit here, a forgiven sinner. The non-Christian is spiritually bankrupt. He has debt before God that he cannot pay. He is not free at all. He is spiritually guilty before a holy and just God. You are in the exact opposite situation. You are standing before God without any guilt. You are spiritually debt free, as I said. You don't, listen to me, you don't owe God anything. What a thing to say. What a thing to say. It makes one pause, doesn't it? But it is true. We don't owe God anything because Christ has paid the penalty of our sin. Amazing grace. How sweet the sound that saved the rich like me. If you are in Christ, the burden of your sin has been removed. It has been tossed to the bottom of God's sea of forgetfulness. You are now free indeed. This is what is meant to motivate you actually to live for God. The amazing joy of a priceless gift from God that we can never repay. And the question this morning is, is is this what is motivating you at the moment? Are you growing and living out for God? Out of the joy of knowing you are free from the penalty of sin. And if the answer is no, beloved, then this morning, go to the Lord Jesus Christ now. Cry out to him. 
Ask him to remind you afresh the benefits of sins forgiven. Tell him honestly, Lord, I've been trying too hard to add on to other things to make me be accepted by you. I want a simple and sincere faith in you. I have forgotten what you have done for me. Help me to see you love me and your, your goodness and your tenderness. Help me to grow every day in the knowledge that I've been freed from the penalty of sin. And I think if you go honestly to God like that this morning, he will answer you. Because God already loves you in Christ. You are his child. And he'll help you to live as a person free from the penalty of sin. Now, I was going to end there. Let me just give you a, quickly a second benefit, right? Of God making us alive with Christ that we see in Colossians. It is that we are now also forever free from the power of sin of our lives. It's so important we understand that. The penalty of sin paid for. And the power of sin over our lives broken. You know, most people think sin is freedom. You know that? Most people think sin is freedom. I don't know if you've listened from, to the news coverage about Roe v. World being dropped in the U.S. Those who kill babies in the womb are saying they have lost their freedom. Shocking. They have lost their freedom. They think sinning is freedom. But sin is not freedom. Sin, as, often, as I've often reminded you, you should think of sin in your life like a great snake. A anaconda, we might say. A great python that has wrapped itself around you. And every day it slowly entangles you. With every time you resist, it pushes back and takes life away. That's the visual image I really will continue to impress on you about what sin does. It kills. It enslaves. And all of us here knows about the power of sin, don't we? We know the power of sin in how it traps people in the darkness of all kinds of sexual perversions and addictions. We know the power of sin in how it stops people refusing to turn to Christ no matter how many sermons you hear. Why haven't you repented and turned to Christ? Because you are living under the power of sin. And of course we know the power of sin even as believers in our own lives. How we rationalize sins. How we fail to love. How we fail to forgive. Our uncontrolled anger, our lusts, our gossips. Sin is an enslaving power. And of course the power of sin is demonstrated by its capacity to kill people physically from Eden onwards. And send them to hell forever. Sin recruits people to hell. That's what sin does. But the good news of this passage is that because we are now alive with Christ, our union with Christ has completely broken the power of sin over our lives. And this is going to become clear as we actually go on in Colossians. It's not obvious from verse 11 to verse 14. But later on, for example, in verse 20 there, Paul says, we are now free not to follow man-centered thinking because we've already died to the elemental spirits of the world. We are now alive to God. 
Freedom from Satan. In fact, we shall see that next week. In chapter 3, Paul reminds us, verse 1 to 4, Paul reminds us that because we are alive with Christ, we are now able to seek the things above where Christ is seated rather than seeking the things below. No worldly things. When you read verse 5 of chapter 3, you notice that Paul gives a list of things that we are now able to say no to. He says, put to death these things. Why? Because they are, you, can, you can do that. The unbeliever can't do that, but you can say no to sin. And then he goes on later on to say, do other good things. Have patience, love, forgiveness, tenderness. Why? Because all of these things are now part of the newness of life that you've received. The bottom line is that when Christ died, our old life died with him. And when Christ rose, we rose with him to the newness of life. And that's what Paul says in that famous passage, isn't it? Romans 6. Let me just read it for you. Romans 6, verse 1 to 4. You can study this for yourself in your own time. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means, says Paul. How can we who die to sin live in it? No, do you not know that all of us have been baptized, who have been baptized into Christ, were baptized into his death. We were buried with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, listen to this, we too might walk in newness of life. Do you see that? If you're trusting in Christ today, you are alive with Christ to newness of life. A life free from the power and control of sin. Now, you might say, why then am I sinning? Well, because you live in the now and not yet. Right now, we are alive with Christ. Sat with him in the heavenly places. But there's a not yet to come, isn't it? When we shall put on new bodies, new minds, and stand by sin. And so Paul can say in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, In this body we groan, beloved. Because we live in the middle of the tension between what we will be finally and what we are now. In the now and not yet. So, of course, we still struggle with sin. But it doesn't take away from the fact that the power of sin has been broken. In fact, quite the opposite. The sanctifying work of God in your life assumes it. Assumes the power of sin is broken. Because how else would God sanctify you if you're still trapped in your sin? No, God is transforming us every day from one degree of glory to next. Why? Because the power of sin has been broken. And so what this means for you if you're a true follower of Jesus is this. What you need to do is to surrender yourselves to God every day. To let him carry on the work of transforming you because you are already free from the power of sin. There is hope against any addictions. In fact, there is a sense in which no Christian is addicted to anything. Because the power of sin has been broken. You can never say as a Christian, I have no choice but to sin. That's a lie. When you sin, you are denying that you are already alive with Christ. And so this morning, please ask yourself that question as I come to an end. Do you really believe this passage and what he's teaching you this morning? Do you believe that you are united with Christ forever? Well, if the answer is yes, then resolve now to put sin to death. Examine things in your life that you're trying to idolize and add to your life. 
Put them to death right away. Don't negotiate with sins. Seek and destroy it. That's the SAS motto, which you probably should also... I think it is. I think it used to be. Maybe they've changed now. They've gone perhaps walk. But seek and destroy. That should be your principle. Don't be content with a Christ plus X religion. Kill your idols today. You have no reason... You have no reason not to do that because the truth Paul has taught us in this passage is that all followers of Christ are complete in Christ because we died with Christ and we are risen with him. Let me just end by reminding you, beloved, that our lives, our entire lives, the joy of this passage is that our entire lives, our, our sin, our works, our faith, our everything, all of that has now been swallowed up in this man Jesus. Our Messiah. Our whole life has been completely buried with him and we, we have now risen with him as new people. We are no longer alone, beloved, but fully joined and united with Christ. Because we are united with Christ, we stand before God alive, not dead. Forgiven, not spiritually broke. Cleansed of our sin, not vile and spiritually stinky, Right? No, we've been welcomed, not shunned by God. We stand holy and righteous in the blood of Christ, not in our sin and filth. No longer dead in our sins, but completely alive in Christ. We're now alive in our living head, our Messiah, the Lord Jesus, and we're living a new forgiven life. And that's what I've been trying to impress upon you over the last two messages, that This is the glory of our union with Christ. We're united with him forever. No condemnation now, I dread. Amen.